Hello, I'm Earl Fontenelle, and you're listening to the Schwepp, the Secret History of Western Esotericism podcast online at schwepp.net. Episode 131, Soul Flight, Noetic Bodies, and Pneumatic Vehicles, Toward a History of the Platonist Subtle Body. In the last episode, we introduced the idea of the subtle body across the Western esoteric traditions and some of the problems we might face when trying to talk about it, to model it, or otherwise to engage with it from a scholarly standpoint. In this and the next episode, we're going to dive back into the evidence. Much as Dr. Strange's spirit form can leave the arcane scenery of the alternate dimensions evoked in such exquisite weirdness by the great Steve Ditko and dive back into his body and explore the different forms of subtle body we encounter in ancient Greek culture. In parts one and two in this episode, we shall discuss the ancient Greek soul travelers, the Yathromantes, and the Platonist ideas about the subtle bodies found in Plotinus and Porphyry, bringing our discussion of the Platonists sort of up to date. In the next episode, in parts three and four, we shall look at the theory of astral accretions and the Christian idea of the resurrection body. Not everything we talk about in this series will be subtle bodies per se, some of it, like the theory of astral accretions attaching to the soul in her descent into the cosmos, which we find in a number of different late antique thought worlds, is not always expressed as an extra body, but, for example, as astral garments which the soul wears, or through similar imagery. Or pneuma, spirit, which is sometimes described as a body, and sometimes just as pneuma, part of the human being somewhere between the gross materiality of the physical body and the incorporeality of the soul. But everything we're going to talk about in this and the next episode is at least important in any discussion of a tertium quid, a third thing aside from the body and the soul. Sometimes this is seen as a good thing. Sometimes this tertium quid will be seen as a kind of cancerous accretion which must be extirpated. But in any case, it makes a part of what it is to be a human being on Earth. Or as we shall see in this episode, a human being not on Earth. And since things like astral chitonis, counterfeit spirits, or pneumatic vehicles are also subtle, in the sense that you can't see or touch them in any obvious way, but you believe they exist, or even experience having one, we can comfortably or semi-comfortably include all of these different sorts of evidence under the subtle body rubric. Part 1. The Yathromantes Now before we even get to late antique religion and Platonism, we must go back to the ancient Greek shamans or Yathromantes, healer seers. Listeners will recall these late archaic Greek soul manipulators whom we discussed in episode 8 with Daniel Ogden, and in our special episode devoted to these figures to be found following episode 23. These were people associated with a number of themes in surviving evidence from antiquity, including theories of metempsychosis, but most relevantly for the current discussion with the power of soul flight. Now, most of these yathromantes, if they did live historically, because names like Orpheus, even if they're based on some original historical person, are so encrusted with myths that we can't really say anything about who the real Orpheus might have been, and we can probably conclude that there never was a real Orpheus. Some of these figures predate the appearance of the idea of the human soul as a unified, self-sufficient entity, which could account for the human mind or self. As we discussed in episode four with Richard Seaford, 
We don't have evidence for such a unified conception of the human being before the 6th century in Greece. And our earlier evidence from Homer paints a completely different image of the human being, one made up of a number of independent quasi-organs of consciousness and perception, things like prapides and nous and psyche and thymos. Of our iatromantes, it's really in Pythagoras and Empedocles that we can maybe argue historically that they might have had some theory of soul, or in Empedocles' case, of the human daimon, which could meaningfully be called a theory of the soul as unified seat of self. With earlier characters like Abaris and Aristeus, we have every reason to think that they had no such idea. That's okay. They might still have an, had an idea of soul flight, or of what is often referred to as soul flight. We have evidence from many cultures from around the world for the idea that some aspect of the human being is capable of leaving the body and going on journeys. And this doesn't necessarily imply a sophisticated or unitary theory of soul or any theory of soul. Nevertheless, these kinds of ideas tend to be talked about as theories of soul or journeys of the soul. However, and here is our point, which we're making in a typically long-winded way, the sources in which we find our evidence for the Yathromantes are almost all written under the influence of theories of soul, theories of a unified seat of consciousness. When Herodotus tells us that Aristeus journeyed all over the world in the form of a raven, pretty much any intellectual writing after Plato's time is going to say, ah, this obviously means that his incorporeal soul was traveling around in the form of a raven, right? So when we talk about soul travel in these potentially late archaic yatromantes, we do not mean to imply that they had anything like a theory of soul. But in reception, of course, their exploits are made to fit with later post-Platonic theories about soul. And a lot of the reception of these characters comes to us from middle and late Platonists who want to fit them into some kind of theoretical framework. Now, our sources suggest that a major ability that these special people had was one form or another of projecting their soul from their body and going on journeys in disembodied form, were sometimes even treated to the rather Dr. Strange-like detail that the body, uh, temporarily bereft of its soul, would l then lie as though dead or asleep in some kind of cataleptic state. And there's a lot of kind of interesting references to something like catalepsy in the sources here. Now, in lieu of any sophisticated theory of the soul as an immaterial, a priori, separable from the body sort of thing, these early Greek soul manipulators were probably inhabiting a thought world in which something like Dr. Strange's astral body was the model. That is, an invisible part of the practitioner, which was able to split off and go flying around. The point for the history of Western esotericism here is that the lore associated with these soul manipulators, which we find all over antique literary sources, these guys were very famous and remained so until late antiquity, having quite literally legendary status, the lore associated with these soul manipulators is definitely part of the story of the development of subtle body ideas later on. These are later ideas, but they may well have looked back on this lore for the source of some of their developments. So that's the Yatromantes. Let's turn to part two of our discussion, the soul vehicle in late antique Platonism. Now this section is a doozy and this episode is a doozy, but... This evidence is fascinating, and we wanted to do it justice. Let's start with a few facts. It's widely agreed 
that among Platonists from Plotinus onward, some theory of a tertium quid, a third something making up the human soul-body duality into at least a triad of soul-body and tertiary something, seems to have been universal. However, the scholarship on these tertia quae, in my view, is not complete. There are a lot of quite different things going on in different thinkers, and different scholars have tried to unify these things rather overmuch under a single rubric, in my view. Another problem is that ideas about subtle bodies or similar go back to the second century before Plotinus, as John Dillon has shown, though Dillon doesn't talk about subtle bodies in this context, but about the soul vehicle, or ochema pneuma, the vehicle spirit. Indeed, the most common scholarly rubric in the case of the Platonists has been that of the soul vehicle, and the soul vehicle is very important, don't get me wrong. I don't think it's the whole story, however. First of all, let's survey the second century evidence, which has been underplayed in the scholarship. Proclus attributes to Atticus and Albinus, and certain others like them, the doctrine that the logike psyche is immortal, that's the rational soul, but the alogos zoes sympasa, the entire irrational life, and to pneumaticon ochimates psyches, the pneumatic vehicle of the soul, are destroyed at the time of death. Now, Atticus and Albinus are both 2nd century Middle Platonists. If they actually talked about a pneuma vehicle of the soul in those terms, then this pushes the ochima back to their time well before Plotinus. But we don't necessarily need them anyway. The pseudo-Plutarchian on Homer's life and poetry attributes a theory that the soul takes to pneumaticon with it at death, and this pneumatic principle acts as its ochema. We can adduce here the medical writer Galen, who knows what he considers a platonic theory of a luminous body, and approves of it, and this luminous body is the ochema of the soul, and Alexander of Aphrodisias, the second century Aristotelian philosopher and commentator, who knows of this theory and disapproves of it. Let's just quickly quote Galen here. And if we must speak of the substance of the soul, we must say one of two things. We must say either that it is this, as it were, luciform and ethereal body, soma, a view to which the Stoics and Aristotle are carried in spite of themselves as the logical consequence of their re- teachings, or that it is itself an incorporeal substance, and this body is the first vehicle, ochema, by means of which it establishes partnership with other bodies. End of quote. So, the theory of the Ochima was around in at least some second century Middle Platonists and Platonist adjacent thinkers like Galen. We can also adduce here the Chaldean Oracles, fragment 158 de Place, which fragment is quoting the bishop Synesius in his work on dreams. And Synesius says, quote, The pneuma accompanies the ascending soul as far as it can follow, and it's able to follow until it has come to the furthest opposite place. For also listen to what the oracles say about this. And you will not leave behind the dregs of matter on a precipice, but there is also a portion for the image, edolo, in the place surrounded with light. End of quote. Uh, Incidentally, if you're wondering 
why a Christian bishop of the 5th century is quoting the Chaldean oracles? Well, hold on, gentle listeners. We will be getting to him when the time comes. Now, this is being read by Synesius as a reference to an ochima, as Psellus, incidentally, will also read this passage in the Middle Ages. The question is whether we're justified in accepting this reading, since the term ochima does not appear in the passage. I leave that open. It's clearly saying something about some aspects of matter, of the edolon, the the image world that we live in here in the cosmos, accompanying the soul on its ascent, even to the higher realm, the place surrounded with light. Although we know the Chaldean cosmology is very complicated and there's more than one place surrounded with light. So how high the soul is going while still accompanied by the images is a question. Nevertheless, the Galen quote we've given is pretty unquestionable. Now, how important these ideas about soul vehicles were to the philosophical Middle Platonists, we can't say. Although our Proclus quote, it's clear that the question of whether or not the vehicle survived death is already being debated in the second century. Given the eschatological role that the vehicle plays in Porphyry and later Platonists, this is clearly significant. However, I hesitate to take this evidence at face value because Proclus tends to paraphrase rather than to quote directly. And it's entirely plausible in my view that Atticus and Albinus didn't actually use the phrasing pneumatic vehicle of the soul. They might have done, but we would also fully expect Proclus to take some other possible references in these authors, maybe to pneuma, maybe to some other subtle body conception, and just slide it into his ready-made category of pneumatic soul vehicle. Moving forward, in the surviving texts of Platonists from Plotinus onwards, we have various references to a number of things which may perhaps be attributable to the concept of subtle body. Again, we find a number of quite different formulations in our sources, which might or might not lead us to think that all of these authors are referring to the same entity. Subtle body terms include periblema pneumaticon, the pneumatic envelope, psychicon pneuma, psychic noose or soul noose, augoidesoma, luminous body, ochima augoides, luminous vehicle, luminosi corporis amictus, the garment of the luminous body found in Macrobius's Latin, sometimes ochima vehicle, sometimes simply pneuma in context where it's clear that what is being meant is, is the ochima pneuma, like in Porphyry's De Antro Nymphorum. All of this variation should a priori not be surprising. Late Platonists couldn't agree on the nature of the soul either as we see if we compare, for example, Plotinus's extensive discussions of the soul with the fragments of Iamblichus's De Anima, where Iamblichus repeatedly disagrees with him. And then we can take, again, Proclus, who, who tries to um, absorb Iamblichus, but sometimes differs with Iamblichus despite himself. This variation across the Platonist spectrum is one of the reasons I'm not convinced we should be talking about all this evidence as soul vehicle evidence. This becomes even more problematic because, as we shall discuss in the next episode, these ideas, combining luminosity, pneuma, and the notion of a vehicle in various mixtures, are not the whole story. We also need to look at the important theory of astral accretions and various Gnostic ideas of false souls and false pneumas, which get added on to the primary human being. But for the remainder of the present episode, let's see if we can draw up a concise, conservative, and accurate picture of the properly Platonist theory of the soul vehicle in the strict sense found in Plotinus and Porphyry, which will bring us up to date. But first, we need, I think, 
a very brief history of Pneuma, or at least such a history will be helpful to the listener. So what is Pneuma? As keen listeners will know, the root of the word Pneuma is from the Greek verb pneo, to breathe, and the notion in our early sources has something to do with breath and with the life found in living, breathing things. We find it mentioned in the Hippocratic On Regimen, a text dating from sometime in the 4th century BCE, as something that circulates around inside the body. Perhaps something not too dissimilar, actually, to our idea of oxygen entering the bloodstream and circulating throughout the body. Interestingly, pneuma is translated into Latin by the word spiritus, which simply is the Latin word for breath. However, anyone with a passing familiarity with Christianity knows that the spirit, and the Holy Spirit in particular, has nothing to do with breath. So how do we get from breath, or maybe life force or vital principle, to the Holy Spirit? Now, here, no one knows the whole story, I would say, but Stoicism is undoubtedly one of the most important chapters in the story. As we discussed in episode 45 on Stoic physics and esoteric metaphysics, and the reason we titled that episode And Esoteric Metaphysics is precisely because the pneuma, as discussed by the Stoics, is going to end up being transformed in our period into many other things. The Stoics made pneuma into an entity, a material entity, a body in fact, identified as the divine creative fire or aether suffusing the whole universe. The Stoics kept their pneuma physical, everything was physical for the Stoics, but it was nevertheless divine. From this Stoic conception of a material substance, which could, though material, kind of interpenetrate all things and flow around, or at least under the influence of this conception, all manner of new conceptions of pneuma arose in the early centuries of our era, including the early Christian movements. Now here we at least want to add in the influence of the Hebrew idea of ruach, which got translated into Greek in the Septuagint Bible as pneuma. And so the Hebrew God now has a pneuma, which among other activities moved up upon the face of the deep in the book of Genesis. In St. Paul, in the New Testament, the pneuma is everywhere. It's through pneuma that the Christian knows the truth. The pneuma fills him and allows him to perform miracles. Pneuma for the win, basically. In our fascinating early so-called Gnostic thinkers like Basilides and Valentinus, pneuma is crucially important. It's not the people of soul, the psychikoi, but the people of pneuma, the pneumatikoi, who are the elect group, those destined to return to the divine realm. See episodes 82 and 83 for more on this. In the next episode, we'll be talking more about Gnostic pneuma and soul. But in the meanwhile, we should just mention that this Christian transformation of the idea of pneuma into, well, what we know as spirit, lies at the root of the idea of spirituality, which nowadays is something that is sometimes contrasted with religion. And this spirituality-religion dichotomy actually kind of goes back to St. Paul, really. The letter killeth, but the spirit giveth life. Corinthians 3.6. Now, on the side of alchemy, we've discussed the Physicae Chimistica of the Pseudo-Democritus in episode 86 of the podcast. There is no pneuma in the Pseudo-Democritus. When next we encounter alchemy, however, in the 4th century writer Zosimus of Panopolis, materials 
will have pneuma within them. We'll discuss what that might mean when we get to the 4th century, but I mention it now as another example of the many ways in which this term acquired radically new meanings in our period. So what about Platonism? Well, as we know, Platonists all believed in two realities, soul and body. Soul is incorporeal and immortal, and body is, well, tougher to define, weirdly, but most Platonists would agree that all bodies are by definition a combination of form and matter, so that the corporeal, the bodies, only exist because of the incorporeal, the form. How soul fits into that equation, is soul a form, is soul kind of a form-like entity, this is answered differently by different thinkers, but the basic incorporeal and corporeal dichotomy is maintained across the Platonist uh, spectrum. Okay, now we have enough to go on to address the main scholarly work on the Ochema Pneuma. Robert Christian Kissling's 1922 article, The Ochema Pneuma in the Neoplatonists and the Dei Insomnis of Synesius of Cyrene, seems to have sparked modern discussions on the pneumatic vehicle of the soul. And incidentally, that is the same esoteric bishop of Cyrene that we saw uh, citing the Chaldean oracles earlier, and we'll get back to him because he's fascinating. But for now, we're concerned with the groundbreaking background research that Kissling did in order to elucidate Synesius's theory. We're very grateful to Kissling for having dug up so many fascinating references to subtle body theories in antique literature, but we're somewhat less grateful that he chose to lump all that material together under the rubric of Ochema Pneuma, and to frame the whole thing as an example of philosophically dull Neoplatonists attempting to reconcile Plato with Aristotle in a way which neither Plato nor Aristotle would have countenanced. Now, our Platonists probably are doing that, but that's not all they're doing. Now, the chief Platonic source texts, according to Kisling, and he's right about this, for the souls having a vehicle are the chariot myth in the Phaedrus, pretty obviously. The word ochima is a normal Greek word for chariot. Perhaps the Phaedo, where souls heading toward the afterlife after their judgment embark in ochimata, vehicles, but probably in this context, boats, which carry them to the lake of Acheron, where they dwell and are purified. But most importantly, the Timaeus. And this is the text that Kissling really emphasizes. Here we see the demiurge at work creating the universe out of soul. Quote, and again, he poured the remains of the previous material into the first crater in which he had mixed the blended soul of the all, mixing it in the same way, but no longer with an unmixed purity, but in second and third levels of purity. And having mixed the whole, he divided it into souls in equal number to the stars and assigned each soul to each star and setting them each as into a chariot, hos es ochima, he showed them the nature of the all and told them the laws of fate, hemarmene. End of quote. Now, here we see both an explicit reference to a vehicle of the soul, and we see that for Plato this is astral, because the stars themselves are the vehicles that they're having soul poured into them. So when we look at the night sky, basically, we're looking at the soul vehicles of the stars. Great. Now, to these platonic sources, according to Kissling and scholars following him, we must add a sprinkling of Aristotle. The Aristotelian pneuma, which is the place of the nutritive, sensitive, and imaginative soul, 
So this is the place where a lot of what we think of as cognition actually happens rather than in what you might call the rational soul. This pneuma is generated from something analogous to the fifth element, aether, from which the stars are made. So our pneuma is a kind of starry stuff, right? You can see how easy it would be a priori to connect Plato's account in the Timaeus with Aristotle's account and go, uh-huh. Especially when you keep in mind that Plato in the Timaeus later goes on explicitly to state that the human being is a microcosm of the macrocosm, which is the world soul revolving in the heavens. Now, this is what I call the harmonization thesis. As Kisling puts it in his article, quote, the theory of the Ohima Pneuma, as met with in the Platonic writers, represents the reconciliation of Plato and Aristotle on a subject which the former never taught and the latter was incapable of defining, end of quote. Now, scholarship has mostly repeated this formula. Kisling tells us that the Ohima serves primarily to link the soul to the body and also comes from the idea that the soul in descending into the body through the celestial spheres needed a vehicle to do this. Is this right? Both of these are true of some accounts of the Ohima, but that's not all that the Ohima can do. It's also phenomenological, sensory, eschatological. So it is our means of sensing, of exercising aesthesis in the cosmos in some authors. And it also has a role to play in the fate of souls after death in a big way in some of our authors. So he oversimplifies the story, I think, both in the reasons the Platonists might have posited such a entity, and also in the number of functions that this entity plays in Platonist writing. He also gets the dating wrong, perhaps through his desire to attribute the Ohima to the, quote, melting pot of Neoplatonism, end of quote, which he does not think is very highly of. He says, quote, it seems that the identification of Plato's Ohima and Aristotle's Pneuma is posterior to Plotinus. Okay, that's just wrong, as we've seen. Galen, the pseudo-Plutarch, even if Atticus and Albinus are being misread by Proclus and the Chaldean oracles by Cynesius and Pselos, we still have those two, uh, Galen and the pseudo-Plutarch, and, and indeed Alexander of Aphrodisias. And they're all putting pneuma and vehicle right next to each other and attributing their doctrines either to Plato or to Plato and Aristotle. So there are some problems with the harmonization thesis. In presenting the evidence for subtle body theories of various types in antiquity, therefore, I want to avoid as much as possible the assumption that all of our testimonies must be talking about roughly the same thing based on roughly the same exegetical sort of story. And if proof were needed, let's turn to the evidence, finally. Starting with Plotinus, who has a subtle body theory which no one else in antiquity has, and which really does not have anything to do with an Ohima Pneuma. But we'll start with the Ohima side of things. Plotinus never speaks of an Ohima Pneuma per se in those words, but there are enough references to Pneuma as a bridging entity between soul and body, and to astral bodies acquired during the descent of the soul, to postulate that he held some such theory. However, we haven't even mentioned astral theory yet in this episode, really. As will become clear in the following episode, we do have a lot of evidence for astral bodies, I mean literally astral bodies, made out of the influence of the stars and planets, 
In ancient Platonism and more widely in Platonizing religious currents of late antiquity, such as certain Hermetica and Gnostic tractates. But again, I'm not sure that those theories are necessarily the same thing as the theory of the Ochima. Now, what about the Ochima and similar notions in Plotinus? As always, full references down to the line number are given in the works cited bibliography to this episode. At Ennead 1.6, we learn of accretions that are acquired in the soul's descent, which are stripped away in the approach to the good. And this leads up to a reference to alone with the alone, one of the, the crucial uh, Plotinian and Numenian catchphrases to do with the encounter of this, the human self with the highest reality, the good. He doesn't say anything about bodies or vehicles here, but he the term he uses for the stripping away is the term you would use for taking off your clothes. So he's probably talking about some kind of garments, whether these are attachments or something maybe more physicalist is a bit difficult to say. At 2.2, we learn that there is a penuma that surrounds the soul and probably has a circular motion. He's discussing why the heavens have a circular motion as opposed to, say, a straight line motion, but the human body doesn't. The human body doesn't revolve. And Plotinus points out that the pneuma surrounding our soul perhaps does move in a circular fashion. Now, Armstrong takes this to be a reference to breathing. Remember, pneuma does mean breath, but no way, Armstrong. As we shall see when we get to Iamblichus and later Platonists, the pneumatic vehicle is considered to be a spherical body that revolves. And this, I think, is definitely the tradition that Plotinus is referring to here. There are strong uh, Platonist reasons to argue that this pneuma should be spherical um, or have a spherical motion based on Platonic stroke Aristotelian theories of motion. But you're just going to have to take my word on that because um, this is already a pretty long episode. Plotinus at 4.3 talks about successive somata bodies, which are assumed as the soul descends and then laid aside again as the soul ascends. Now that really is some astral body type stuff. And as we move later into that treatise, we find that the soul first takes on a body when entering the sphere of the fixed stars, peeping out from the noetic, and that it uses that body, the uranic body, to travel lower to earthier bodies. Armstrong translates, the souls, when they have peeped out of the intelligible world, go first to heaven, Urano, and when they have put on a body there, go by its means to earthier bodies, to the limit to which they extend themselves in length. And some souls only come from heaven to lower bodies. Others pass from one body into another. Those whose power is not sufficient to lift them from this region because they are weighed down and forgetful. Uh, end of quote. Now, this is really some astral body type stuff. We do see here that the highest of these bodies, the Uranic body, the first body, is then used as a vehicle to, for the soul to move around. And this makes sense. Um, I think one of the reasons that this term vehicle was returned to again and again by Platonists is because soul can't occupy space. It can't move in space because it's incorporeal. It needs a kind of car in order to get around. And so that is the, uh, the subtle body. So here we have a number of subtle bodies and a kind of potential for not necessarily going to the lowest ones. At 3.6, in a discussion of purification of the soul through separation from all that which is not 
the self, Plotinus says this, quote, And the purification of the passions is awakening from strange images and not seeing them, and separation through not inclining downward very much. Incidentally, lovers of the question of Gnostic influence on Plotinus might think that the Sethian term noise here is significant, but moving on, nor forming images of what is below in the imaginal faculty. But separation could also mean stripping away the things from which she, the soul, was separated when she was not upon a pneuma, turbid from gluttony and surfeited with impure flesh, but that in which she is is so fine that she can ride upon it, ep autu ochestai, in peace. End of quote. So that was a bit convoluted, but Plotinus is saying here that the purification of the soul can have at least two different aspects. And I think he's actually talking about pneuma in both of these cases, though it's only in the second one where he really names it as such. And incidentally uses the verbal form okestai, which is the verb associated with ochema, to, to use as a vehicle. One is purifying the fantasia, this faculty of inner imaging, which allows us to collate our sense data. And we know that for Aristotle and for Porphyry, that occurs precisely in the pneuma. But Plotinus, I don't think, really pronounces fully on the matter. So it's an open question where fantasia happens for Plotinus. Um, And in the second way of separation, one is purifying the pneuma through vegetarianism and ascetic practices, or at least through not being a glutton and a couch potato. In other words, inward and outward disciplines are both crucial for purifying the pneuma. Now, this we shall see again when we turn to theurgy and the question of what part exactly of the human being is being purified by material ritual practices gets raised. As we already see in Plotinus, both inward and physical technologies of the self, to use the trendy term, uh, have their role to play in purifying this lower part of the human. So we can say from all these quotes that Plotinus has some kind of theory of a pneumatic body. Probably it's the same as the different bodies that are acquired as the soul descends through the stars, though that's not a priori the case. And Last but not least, this body needs to be purified for the soul to approach its true noetic home. Now, what about the true noetic home? As we discussed in our episode on the secret life of the undescended self in Plotinus, Plotinus also thinks that we have noetic subtle bodies. Now, unlike the ideas about pneumatic additions to the soul-body complex we've been discussing so far, this idea seems to have been unique to Plotinus among Platonists. And you can see that why at the level of doctrine, because it it kind of subverts several crucially held distinctions of Platonist thought. As we know, and as Plotinus says all the time, there are two main levels where things exist. The noetic level, which is asomaton, incorporeal, and imperceptible to the bodily senses, and The cosmos, which has bodies and is aestheticon, perceptible to the senses. Another thing he says numerous times is that the noetic level of reality has everything in it that is present at the cosmic level except altogether instead of separated, without time or space, and without poiotes, qualia, the extra characteristics of things down here, like in this place rather than in that place, or 
green rather than red, this sort of thing. None of that accidental stuff exists at the noetic level either. So when Plotinus turns around and says, actually, there are noetic bodies, there are noetic senses, and there is even a noetic quasi poietes, combining all the lower poietes into one, he is in fact subverting, in a sense, the entire received wisdom about reality. <laughs> well, he's doing something unusual, to say the least. Let's review the evidence. At 4.3, we learned that seemingly humans have bodies there in the noetic. Quote, but there each body is all pure and like an eye, and nothing is hidden or feigned, but before speaking to another, that one has already seen. End of quote. So we have noetic bodies, and they are somehow organs of perception. They are purified, well, giant eyeballs, I guess. We'll come back to the giant eyeball image in a minute. In another passage, in what I take to be an eschatological vein, in 4.4, he says that when we're separated from, from our normal bodies in the noetic world, potentially after death, potentially, I guess, through ascent to the noetic, we will recognize each other there, especially if we must necessarily be clothed in bodies of similar form, that similar form to our normal body. And then he raises the question of, well, perhaps the bodies will be spherical, but we will still recognize the ethe, the kind of individual characteristics which will survive into our noetic body. So how will we be individuals who can recognize each other in the noose after we die? Well, our bodies will somehow still look like us, even if they're spherical. Crazy, but that's what Plotinus means. This sphericity motif again is important. For, as we mentioned earlier, from at least Iamblichus onward, the soul vehicle is spherical in shape. But this is not the soul vehicle. This is the noetic body. And it's potentially spherical. At 6-7, Plotinus seems to equivocate about noetic bodies, but a lot hinges on whether we amend the word corporeal, somata, or embodied things, corporeal things, which is what's found in the manuscripts, to incorporeal, which a lot of editors have done based on the, the normal Platinian premise that everything in the noose is incorporeal. However, it's got to be corporeal, folks. Sorry, um, Ado and Henry and Schweitzer in their first edition. I'm going to have to go with Armstrong, Ficino, and Henry and Schweitzer in their second edition and say it's got to be corporeal. And if, if anyone doubts it, they can just turn to Ennead 6-2, where the doctrine of noetic bodies is clearly affirmed based on the fact that since there is matter and poiotes, there in the noose, there must be bodies. Dang. Now, I'd like to revisit two passages, both from Ennead 6-7, where Plotinus gets phenomenological about this noetic body. The first is at chapter 6, lines 1 through 11. For if these bodies were present there, that's in the noetic world, the soul could sense and apprehend them. This passage is a strong affirmation of noetic senses and makes explicit the point that if we are sensing things there, doubtless with our spherical bodies, which are like an eye, uh, which is an amazing metaphor, especially when you think that he has got to mean, metaphorically, an eye that sees in every direction simultaneously, since there are no directions in the noose. So that's the kind of eye we're talking about. 
if we are sensing things there, then these things must have bodies to be sensed because that's the definition of what sensation is. So he isn't breaking with Platonist theory in asserting that there are somehow senses of incorporeal things. That's not how senses work. You can't have that. That just wouldn't be sensing. No, but since we do have senses in the noetic, perceptions in the noetic, there must be bodies there. That's where he's kind of pushing the boundaries of what is possible for Platonism. No one in Plotinus's position, I put it to the listener, would reason to these conclusions from theoretical grounds or from exegesis of Plato. Thus, I think it's simplest to argue that Plotinus is reasoning based on his own experiential knowledge of noetic sense perception toward a theory that fits that experience. He's been there, he's been the giant eyeball, and now he's trying to explain how it's possible that he was the giant eyeball. At Ennead 6-7, again, a bit later, in chapter 12, he tells us more about this noetic perception or sensation. Quote, As if there were a single universal quality containing and preserving all the qualities within itself, that of sweetness along with fragrance, being the quality of wine simultaneously with being all the possibilities of tasting, and acts of seeing colors, and what is known through touch, being what hearing hears, and simultaneously all the melodies and every rhythm. End of quote. In other words, the giant eyeball is simultaneously a giant ear, a giant touch receptor, a giant nose, and a giant tongue capable of tasting everything at the same time, or rather the same eternal moment. And the things that this giant sort of normally we would call it immaterial, but I guess we can't call it immaterial, sensory organ is sensing, all of which are embodied, are being sensed at the same eternal moment and are one with the act of sensation. Boom. Now, we don't have to go in for the term mysticism here, and we don't like to at the Schwepp, nor for the idea of mystical experience, because both of these terms usually serve to obscure what our sources are telling us rather than to clarify anything. Nevertheless, one can say, I think, that if there is such a thing as a textual record of mystical experience, this is it. Now let's turn to Porphyry. Turning to Porphyry, Plotinus's student, we have a lot more on the Ochima Pneuma, but nothing on noetic bodies, as far as I can tell. The noetic body seems to die with Plotinus. It's just too weird or too badass for Platonists to handle. Now, with Porphyry, we get lots and lots of subtle body and astral influence data, but the question for me definitely becomes whether all of this should be attributed to the Ochema. Porphyry tells us that we obtain an Ochema during the descent of the soul through the astral spheres. There are several grades of Ochema we can get, so we don't have to descend all the way to the lowest. This resonates with Plotinus's first body, which is found in the sphere of the fixed stars, and then the lower bodies, which may or may not be acquired afterwards. I think what Porphyry is saying here, and Plotinus too, is that a higher level soul might simply stop at the body of, say, an aerial daimon, or maybe even a star god, uh, rather than coming all the way down to the earthly level. For Porphyry, again, the astral potencies have major effects on the Ochima. Um, one piece of evidence from the lost text on what is up to us is actually more horoscopic 
than astral influence-ish, but it's clear that as the soul descends and sort of obtains its ohima, the precise stellar configurations at that moment are what cause the horoscope to be applicable. Uh, And we shall discuss that more in, in part three of this history in the next episode. The ohima can survive the death of the material body for Porphyry, and indeed it's through the ohima that we eventually may suffer posthumous punishments because obviously you can't punish a soul, can you? It's immaterial. What are you going to do? Shout at it? And it's also through the uh, ohima that the soul can reascend through the cosmos, which is also quite logical if you think about it, because souls can't even be in the cosmos, properly speaking, because they don't occupy places. So if there's going to be any ascending, it has to be done with a vehicle. But the ohima will eventually be recycled into the universe. Oh, and last but not least, maybe coolest of all, the rainbow-colored column extending from the heavens to the earth seen by the soul of Ur as he wanders the underworld with his soul companions in Book 10 of Plato's Republic. You all remember the giant rainbow-colored column, right? It's very psychedelic. If not, see episode 30 of the podcast or read Book 10 of Plato's Republic. Anyway, this column is the Ohima of the world soul herself. Nice. Now, with Porphyry, we have something we don't have with Plotinus, an actual discussion of the soul vehicle as such, a form of pneumatic body, which allows the soul to cohabit with the body, and which allows the soul to move about in the spatialized cosmos, since pure souls, of course, cannot occupy space, being fundamentally incorporeal, so they need a vehicle to get around. But it also serves eschatological purposes. Now, this eschatological theme will become very important in later Platonist conceptions, as in Proclus. The gods need to punish evildoers between their lives, as Plato tells us in his numerous afterlife myths. But how could an incorporeal soul be punished? Well, through its pneumatic vehicle. For Porphyry, the vehicle will eventually be shed if we're able to reascend to the level of the noose. Now, he must know Plotinus' theory of noetic bodies. But he's not going there himself, at least not in the surviving fragments. Now, Porphyry is widely thought to be the most influential author when it comes to later theories of the soul vehicle. And seeing he's sort of the most influential Platonist author on many, many subjects in later centuries, this is probably right. But a number of scholarly voices have been raised in favor of granting the primacy here to Numenius of Apamea, Do we find a theory of the soul vehicle in the fragments of Numenius? No. But we do find a very detailed, very astralized account of the descent and ascent of souls, as we saw in our episodes on Porphyry's Cave of the Nymphs, where he cites a lot of uh, astral material from Numenius. Now, the theory of astral accretions is often given a Numenian provenance in scholarship, But that in itself may be questionable, because I haven't found anything where he literally says, and as you go down, you pick up vices and virtues from the planets and stuff like that, which we do find in the Hermetica and other sources like the Pistis Sophia. Anyway, we do know for sure that Numenius talked about the soul descending and ascending through the tropics of Cancer and Capricorn and the Milky Way and so on. However, is that theory the same thing as the theory of the soul vehicle? Not exactly. But... The two are undoubtedly relatable, as in 
Porphyry, who, as we've just seen, makes the soul's journey through the stars, both by means of the vehicle, but also makes the vehicle itself kind of pick up astral influences along the way, which he uses to explain quite neatly how astrology works on souls, because souls' actual nature puts them totally outside the realm of fate and stellar influence if you are a student of Plotinus, as Porphyry is. Even if Porphyry didn't agree with Plotinus's view of the undescended self, which is always a tricky question when interpreting Porphyry, he definitely doesn't think souls are passable or subject to fate, qua souls. So to, in order for them to be within fate, they need a vehicle. As long as you have a pneuma, the stars can affect you. Well, that's us up to date, more or less. Join us next time for part three of our discussion of subtle bodies, as we look at the astral side of this subtle body lore in late antiquity, separate the Gnostics from the Oracles, the Hermetists from the Platonists, and try to come up with a model which can accommodate all of these theories on the subtle body. Oh, and the Christian idea of the resurrection body will feature in part four of our discussion. Until then, try to imitate the doctrine of the noetic body and stay highly esoteric. <laughs>